0: Of the day we uh, are going to focus on Russia, and I will just yeah. say that this is Gwenis Young, she's a professor of history and international studies here at UW. I won't do any longer of an introduction if you want to mention any um, anything that is relevant to today's topic. Okay, well, thanks very much, Val, and thanks uh, very much to Phil and Val for inviting me to be here, and thanks for spending a hot um, Wednesday afternoon uh, with me. Uh, so um, I will say nothing more about myself. I'll relate a few personal anecdotes about my time in the Soviet Union and in post-Soviet Russia over the course of the talk. Feel free to ask me any questions at the end uh, that you like. So the title of my talk, as you know, is Putin's Russian uh, Historian's View. And the big question that we're looking looking at today is this. How did the promise of Russia's democratic transition raised with the end of Soviet communism, result in another Russian authoritarianism centered around the personal power of Vladimir Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, the third term president of the Russian Federation. So this is the main question I want to examine today. It's a huge question and one that I can't definitively answer. (laughs) Darn it. (laughs) Maybe I'd get 64,000 rubles, which isn't very much money if I could. And in fact, all the existing uh, explanations are interesting and yet uh, deficient in some way. So instead, uh, what I want to do after placing Putin himself in historical context is introduce you to three major approaches to defining the political system in Russia and examine how they approach the Russian and Soviet past, Uh, I'm also going to critique them, including how they use the past, how they approach history. So first, some brief context. In 2000, Putin, a relatively obscure political figure to most Russians was inaugurated president of the Russian Federation. Here we see Putin with Boris Yeltsin, the preceding president at the inauguration. True, Putin was not completely unknown. Yeltsin had appointed him acting prime minister in 1999 and acting president in 2000. Nor was he unknown in St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad in the Soviet period, After he returned there in 1990 from Dresden, East Germany, where he had been a KGB agent from 1995 to 1990, he became a figure in city politics. In May 1990, he was appointed as Mayor Anatoly Sobchak's advisor on international affairs. In June 1991, he became chair of the St. Petersburg's Mayor's Office Committee for External Relations. He became deputy mayor in 1994 under Mayor Sobchak. These might sound like mid-level, not all that glamorous posts, but they were not. Both positions, all, all of these positions, allowed him to make crucial economic decisions during the years in which Russia's economy was still undergoing a profound transformation from a command economy in which the capitalist market was suppressed to a market economy of private ownership and private property. Putin's behavior, the deals he oversaw that involved foreign companies such as the German company Siemens, was the subject of investigations for corruption, money laundering, and so forth by the St. Petersburg city legislature. So in St. Petersburg, Putin was not unknown. But then, in 1996, his boss, Anatoly Sobchak, lost his bid for re-election. Putin, subject of criminal investigations, and jobless would seem to have had fewer, poor future prospects. But instead, he moved from his hometown of Leningrad to Moscow, where he held increasingly important positions and, in fact, headed the KGB's successor, the FSB, in 1998. So by the time that Putin had become acting prime minister in 1999, acting president from New Year's Eve 1999 to May 2000, and president, elected president from 2000 onwards, he was still so unfamiliar to most Russians that he had to write his autobiography, which is called First Person. Uh, it's a series of interviews with Russian journalists and become the subject of a widely disseminated documentary. Putin's transformation from former KGB expat, lieutenant colonel, to St. Petersburg politician and bureaucrat, to Moscow FSB head and presidential administration official, occurred during the turbulent 1990s. In form and from a distance, Russia was a market economy attracting foreign investors where ordinary Russians could buy products that were always in short supply or downright unavailable, even in late Soviet times. I spent much of 1986 to 1988 in the Soviet Union and in Leningrad in particular, also in Moscow, but mainly in Leningrad. So I know what it was like to live in a place where very basic goods were either intermittently and erratically available or in very short supply or not available at all. Uh, And I know what it was like to then, because of a trip I made back in 1997, to have those same goods be available. You could go into stores and buy practically anything uh, you wanted. And when I say basic goods, I mean toilet paper, I mean bottles of carbonated water, Eventually, in 19, early 1988, it became hard at times to find milk in Leningrad. In practice, the Russian economy was not one in which the untrammeled market decided prices and business deals. Economic privatization went hand in hand with the amassing of great wealth by former communists and KGB officials, with state officials like Putin in Petersburg giving monopolies of various commodities to personal friends, with money made from exporting Russia's natural resources being laundered in banks around the world, including in New York, including elsewhere in the United States, and with Russian people paying higher prices, going hungry because food wasn't available, and suffering from crumbling and sometimes deadly infrastructure. In form and from a distance, Russia was a quote unquote democracy in which elections determined not only the president of the Russian Federation, but the laws that were passed and the governors who headed Russia's regions. In practice, at best, Russia was a Mm quasi-democracy in which oligarchs money bought elections, elected officials used executive prerogatives to amass wealth and suppress critics, criminal investigations of corrupt officials such as Putin were dropped, and in general, understandings mattered more than lost. So these characterizations are necessarily oversimplified and to some extent distorting, but there is no doubt that by the time Putin became president in 2000, illiberal, authoritarian, non-democratic, and state capitalist trends had already developed and made the question of who Putin was, who is this Vladimir Putin, and where he would lead Russia, a hugely important question. So among the questions that of political structure that still needed to be resolved in 2000 were those concerning the Russian Federation itself. So let's take a look at this map so that Russia is not an abstraction. So the Russian Federation is only part, albeit a very large part, of the former Soviet Union. But like the Soviet Union, it still stretches over 11 uh, time zones from the Baltic Sea in the northwest to the Pacific Ocean in the east. It comprises nine federal districts and six types of quote-unquote federal subjects. Those are units of geopolitical territorial organization. I'm just going to list them here. I don't think your students need to know them, but just to give you a sense of the complexity of governing, here they are. Republics two words in Russian that basically mean regions. They were used during the Soviet period. They are the following cries, oblasts. Three federal cities, one autonomous oblast, and four autonomous okrug, another Russian word also used in the Soviet period for district. Russia's size, no longer a sixth of the world's surface that it was during the Soviet times, but still huge. Its climatic diversity, its harsh winters, its declining populations, its emptying village, villages and rural sectors, its rust belts of steel and armament strat factories, just to name a few elements, make governing this vast territorial expanse extremely difficult. There's also the ethnic and ethnic and ethno-territorial issue, a good percentage of citizens of the Russian Federation are not ethnically Russian at all. Uh, They might be Tatars, they might be Bashkirs, for example, they might be Ukrainians. The Orthodox Church has undergone a tremendous resurgence, but the Russian Federation still encompasses tremendous religious diversity, including Muslims, non-Orthodox Christians, Jews, and even Buddhists, just to give a few examples. Much of Putin's support or base lies in regions and cities outside of Moscow, located here, near St. Petersburg, or in what former NPR journalist Ann Garrels calls, quote unquote, Putin company. Mm -hmm. Country. It's Putin company, too. But Mm -hmm. uh, the title of the book is Putin Country. So what exactly is the political system? that Putin and his loyal lieutenants have created, and a certain percentage of Russia's citizens still support, despite certainly a growing opposition movement led by Alexei Navalny, uh, a movement that's especially popular among younger Russians. And what do the defining elements of this political system have to do, if anything? with the Russian and Soviet past. So we're going to examine today, critically, three basic characterizations. All of them, including others that I haven't listed here, such as Russia, you've probably heard these, Russia as a mafia state, for example, have been applied to many other cases besides Russia. The first that we're going to examine is managed democracy, a concept that actually was first advanced by Walter Lippmann in 1920 and has since been applied to other political systems, such as, quite recently, by the Princeton political theorist Sheldon Wallen uh, to the United States. Moreover, one of the Kremlin's own political theorists, or former political theorist, Lev Pavlovsky, has used it to define the contemporary Russian political system. We'll look at this concept in more depth uh, in a moment, but for now, a quick definition of managed democracy. It's a hybrid political form in which democratic political processes such as elections or nominally democratic processes coexist with authoritarian political practices such as the silencing of a critical press and political violence to, deci- to stifle dissent and opposition. The second characteristic that we'll examine is this catchy phrase kleptocracy, uh, advanced very broadly as a way of understanding and defining the Russian political system by Karen DeWisha. Kleptocracy, is you'll probably remember, is ruled by thieves. And what Wisha <laughs> means by, in, specifically by rule by thieves in relationship to Russia and Putin is that Russia's authoritarian political structure is in effect a tribute system. So that is, it's a close-knit cabal, as she puts it, in which Putin presides over the trading of political and economic privileges for political loyalty. As she shows, I think very convincingly, the roots of this predate Putin's becoming president in 2000. And the third approach that we uh, are going to examine in thinking about contemporary Russian authoritarianism is to see it as a phase within a much longer revolutionary process that began in the mid-1980s when Mikhail Gorbachev became General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So as you can see, this represents my own way of thinking about uh, the end of the Soviet Union, uh, the end of Soviet communism, two separate but related processes that are often lumped together as the Soviet collapse and the political development of the Russian Federation since 1991. Certainly 1991, the year most often identified with the Soviet collapse was a year of dramatic political and social rupture akin, say, to 1789 in the French Revolution, 1911 in the history of the Qing Dynasty in China, or 1917 in the Russian Empire. Just as all of those revolutions were processes encompassing distinct phases and and stretching over decades, So, too, what I call the Soviet Social Revolution encompassed different phases and stretched over decades. The French Revolution that brought the invention of modern political practices essential to democracy had its Napoleonic phase and its restoration. So why, then, would we expect the introduction of democratic processes and practices in the Soviet Union at the same time as a rapid compressed transformation from a command to market economy that the Soviet Union was undergoing, not to be followed by some kind of political reaction and possibly some sort of authoritarian political development. So um, after more on Putin and the transition ways of, thinking of explaining the transition from Yeltsin to Putin. Uh, we'll examine each of these different concepts or ways of thinking about contemporary Russian authoritarianism. We'll uh, give some examples. We'll look at how each of them characterizes or, or uses in a very, very general way the Russian and Soviet past. And I'll critique each of them including uh, my own uh, approach and then uh, I'll talk a little bit at the end about challenges I faced in teaching about the late Soviet period and uh, Russia after 1991 Um, I'll have I'll I'll have a show-and-tell item another show-and-tell item in addition to the matryoshka doll um, and then uh, open it up to your questions So let's uh, examine the Putin factor in the larger story of the emergence of a new kind of authoritarianism in Russia. So when you hear the word Putin these days, what do you think of? Anybody? They're just, they're just men. <laughs> what? <laughs> right. Right. Riding with tigers? Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? The sinister, malevolent, Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah? Friction with the U.S. Yeah? Reputed to be worth at least $40 billion. (laughs) Okay, well, Putin is so much in the news today, both as the leader of a major world power and in relationship to the Trump investigation, that it can be really hard for us and our students to think of him in relationship to the Russian and Soviet past. But it's absolutely critical for us to do this, to understand his relationship to that past, if we want to understand the contemporary political system that's emerged. So here go three ways of approaching the question that was on everybody's mind. In Russia, in Europe, in Europe, in the rest of the former Soviet Union in the United States when he became president in 2000. Who was he? So first, I'll place him in historical context. Then we'll look at Putin, to some extent, in his own words, the autobiography, first person. And finally, we'll look at and critique another scholarly way of thinking about Putin, one that involves regarding him as a composite of different public persona. So I could give an entire presentation, or really a series of presentations, on Putin in historical context. This is going to be really brief. Born seven years after the end of World War II in Leningrad to a father who joined the Soviet Navy and fought behind enemy lines, behind German lines, in World War II in Soviet secret police or NKVD destruction battalions and to a factory working mother with a peasant background, Putin's view of communism and the world was shaped significantly by the cult or myth of what in the Soviet Union and in the Russian Federation today is still called the Great Patriotic War. So that is, he was taught that the war was the Soviet system's Armageddon, or ultimate test, and that the Soviet Union was able to defeat Nazi Germany because of the wise guidance of the Communist Party that enabled the heroic sacrifice and unity of the Soviet people. The Leningrad that he grew up in very much bore the scars of the war. His father's body was literally scarred. Uh, his father was disabled as a, the result of a significant war in- injury. His parents had survived the nearly 900 day siege of the city when the city was largely surrounded by uh, the Nazi army and when the only escape route out of the frozen city out of the starving city was over frozen Lake Ladoga to the north. During the siege, We think 670,000 people died, many of famine or related issues. One of them was his older brother, who died of diphtheria. The Leningrad that Vladimir Putin grew up in still had marks from German shells, and a few buildings in the center of the city of St. Petersburg still do to this day, uh, including the area uh, very, very close to what was the Winter Palace where the Tsars lived. So St. Petersburg, as some of you may know, is a city of stunning architecture. But the neighborhood that Putin grew up in was not one of stunning architecture. In fact, it was a kind of rough neighborhood Uh, He grew up on a a street, in case you're interested, called Boscoff Lane. Uh, He didn't really live in poverty, though, in that his parents had an apartment that, while incredibly small, uh, was larger than the apartments of many of his classmates. Moreover, his family had a telephone and eventually a car, possessions that that suggest that his father may well have continued to work for Soviet intelligence services after the war. Mm -hmm. So Putin spent a lot of his time, young Putin spent a lot of his time on the streets, he was known for his love of judo, uh, and he was not much of a student at first. By the time he was 16, this was 1968, the year of the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia, and Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, and a year of very significant dissent in the Soviet Union, Putin had made up his mind about what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to join the KGB. He volunteered to join the KGB. He went to the Leningrad KGB headquarters and said, here I am, I'm yours. Uh, And what they said to him was, That's very nice, Vladimir, Vladimirovich, but you need to, we suggest that you acquire a law degree. And you can't volunteer to join our organization. We select you. So in fact, Putin did go on to learn, uh, earn a law degree from Leningrad State University, uh, where he graduated uh, with a degree in 1975 what Putin was up to from 1975 to 85 isn't all that clear. So he was in the KGB. Uh, it's possible that in the early 1980s, he was working as an undercover KGB agent in West Germany. We do know that from 1985 to 1990, he was an official KGB agent in East Germany, and he had a not-so-glamorous assignment He was assigned uh, to the city of Dresden. This Dresden-East Germany then was his vantage point for experiencing the collapse of the Soviet systems, first in Eastern Europe and then in the Soviet Union itself. He was in Dresden when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. For the most part, until he went back to the Soviet Union in 1990, he learned about Gorbachev's reforms and their destabilizing effect on the Soviet system from afar. When he returned to Leningrad in 1990, he was assigned by the KGB to his former alma mater, namely Leningrad State University. There, he crossed paths uh, with a former law professor, Anatoly Sobchak, later chair of the city council and mayor, as I mentioned. Perhaps by chance, which I doubt, were perhaps as part of a KGB strategy to capture, if slowly, the institutions of Russia's emerging democracy, Sobchak chose Putin to be his top deputy when he was mayor. So let's think about what all this means. Putin was thus making crucial economic and political decisions during the economic depression of the early Soviet period in a city in which, in the early 1990s, people were going hungry because food wasn't available, uh, and people were being paid by barter, often through a barter system. So the roots of Putin's cabal you might say go back to the early 1990s in St. Petersburg we don't however want to write his history or that of post-Soviet Russia in a kind of inevitable or teleological fashion Uh, so it should be remembered that in 1996 when Sobchak lost his bid to be re-elected Putin was 43 years old and and he was unemployed Once again, by chance or design, Putin more than landed on his feet, this time in Moscow. There, through connections, he held a number of positions in the presidential administration, uh, an institutional body that one scholar has aptly described as, quote, the successor to the old Soviet Central Party apparatus, unquote. Yeltsin named him head of the FSB, Uh, successor to the KGB in 1998 and this brings us to a crucial point about Putin and Putin's Russia. So there was tremendous continuity in personal networks, friendships, working relationships from pre-Soviet to early post-Soviet days in the major institutional structures of the Russian Federation. So by by two thousand, Putin has won an election uh, that uh, his own that the kleptocratic powers played to some extent a significant role in helping him win. In part because of control of the media, I'll give an example of this in a second. So what about Putin's first person, his own autobiography, published in May 2000, the very month in which he became elected president of Russia. We know that there was lots of continuity between old Soviet institutions and new institutions of the Russian Federation in terms of personnel. The major example that I've mentioned thus far was the institution that Putin was most closely associated with, namely the KGB and the F- or the FSB, formerly the KGB, now the FSB. But with Putin, and Putin having this historical baggage as somebody very closely identified with the old Soviet system, uh, his media handlers had to fashion him as a leader for uh, a new moment in Russian history. So in the interviews that comprise the autobiography, Putin portrayed himself as a Soviet, Soviet everyman, an ordinary person who dramatically benefited from the Soviet system. He rose, he emphasized, from the streets of Leningrad to graduate from. Leningrad State University, the second most prestigious institution in the Soviet Union. And in first person, he made sure to quell doubts about that he was no longer a communist. He disavowed communist ideology. And to some extent, he stated his commitment to democracy. He made sure to avow that he, yes, he had been committed to Soviet values and the Soviet project industrial modernization and great power status, that Stalin's building of socialism, victory in World War II, and becoming an an atomic power had brought the Soviet Union. He also presented his joining the KGB as an act of patriotic duty to the Soviet Union. A topic that he did not avoid was the Soviet collapse, which, as I mentioned, he experienced part of outside the country in Dresden, East Germany. He acknowledged the disorientation he felt when he realized the Soviet Union would not use troops to maintain the East German communist regime, and he spoke of the metamorphosis of Gorbachev's reforms into collapse of the system as a quote-unquote paralysis of power. Reading not too much between the lines, one finds inkling of Putin's determination to avenge his personal uh, disorientation and recapture, perhaps at an unknown point in the future, the institutional stability of the pre-reform, pre-1985 Soviet system, even if in not that, that future stability would come in a non-communist form. So let's take a look in terms of the significance of the Soviet collapse to Putin on what he said in June of this year uh, in Sochi, site of the 2014 Olympics, in response to questions from one of the gifted children for whom he created a school called Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S. Uh, Before we do that, here's his first person. Uh, You can find the first chapter of it, you and your students can find the first chapter of it on the New York Times website, uh, so it's readily available. Okay, let's see if I can (laughs) do this. Can you see, what, what influenced event influenced you the most? An event in my life. You put me in a difficult spot. There were probably no events that caused a sudden change, but I'll try to talk seriously. Can you, did everybody see the subtitles? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, and you'll get a copy of this, so you'll you can look at it. The emotion. What strikes me as I see this is the emotion. Uh that he's the, I didn't see what the sorry, very last sorry. line was. I think in an adult. You response asked me to an, an adult question. Yeah. You asked, sorry, you asked me an adult yeah. question. Wait, yeah. just I think I I can't. I'm sorry. I can't get it. It's okay. He says. Uh, he says uh, this is a, a grown-up or an adult answer, but you asked me do adult. Yeah, yeah, and he you actually know. says, "I'm sorry." Mm-hmm. It's Vinny, uh, pardon me, mm-hmm. forgive me, uh, which I also find very, very interesting. Uh, so uh, back to um, Putin and different ways about thinking about the question. That was on everybody's mind in 2000, when he became uh, president. We can also think of him as a kind of composite. We, if the, the clicker isn't working. We can think of him as a kind of composite of different persona, uh, which is what uh, Fiona Hill and Clifford Gaddy have done In their book, Mr. Putin: Operative in the Kremlin. So, going over these very quickly: the Statist, whose basic goal is to restore Russian state power, and on the basis of the necessary basis of state unity, eliminating dissent and opposition. History man, championing of those Russian czars who expanded, especially the Russian Empire, and uh, brought the Russian Empire great fame in the world. Survivalist, as the only surviving child of parents who. Made it through, miraculously, the Siege of Leningrad. He focuses on preparing Russia to survive catastrophes. Outsider, an example being he's not from Moscow. Free marketeer. Yes, continuing influence of oligarchs, such as Igor Sechin, who's still very much around. Mentioned in connection with the Trump investigation, incidentally. And and state control of many companies. But under Putin, there was also the use of... uh, lowering taxes to create incentives to work, uh, and the expansion of small and medium businesses. Case officer, use of bribery, blackmail, and information control, including uh, cyber, attack, probably organize, uh, ordering cyber attacks of the U.S. 2016 presidential election. Advantages of this, yes, this six-persona approach makes Putin more complex, such as phrases as Russia's new czar or head of a mafia state. But in my view, it makes Putin's intentions too central to the system. Nor, as much as I would like it, does it place those intentions in historical, social, and cultural systems. So from Yeltsin to Putin, three major explanations. First, the one most closely associated with Masha Gessen, whose book, uh, The Man Without a Face, is highly recommended, that Putin's rise was largely accidental, uh, even unlikely. Putin, as, secondly, as winning the audition of contenders by the family, that is, Yeltsin, his daughter, and other relatives, and second-level families, such as Bir- the oligarch Boris Berezovsky or Putin as part of an FSB strategy to capture the Russian government. His often quoted quip to FSB veterans, comrades, our strategic mission is accomplished. Uh, We have seized power, unquote. So all of these Approaches have something to recommend themselves. There was nothing written in stone about Putin's rise. Historical contingency is important, if that's what Gessen means when she says that Putin became president by chance. But certainly, these other factors were important too. In the interest of time, I'm going to go over these even more quickly, just to emphasize that, uh, because I want to get to the three approaches, uh, critique them and then leave time for your questions. So you should be aware that there was very significant there were very significant elements of continuity between the Yeltsin years, often described as chaotic and definitely painful for many Russians, and those of the Yeltsin years. Influence of the oligarch, control of the media, weakening of the parliament, the most noted example being Yeltsin ordering the army to shell uh, the Parliament by tanks in 1993 during the constitutional crisis over uh, liberal reforms and presidential authority uh, and a, a decline of political freedom that began during the Yeltsin period certainly. yet there have been there were certainly significant changes and there have been significant changes over Yeltsin's Three terms as president and one term as vice president. Increasing uh, bureaucratic management of the economy, curbing of troublesome oligarchs, you might say, such as Mikhail Podorkovsky and Yukas, the oil company, rapid growth of the Russian economy increasing influence because of more money coming in, where do you spend it? Well, Putin decided to spend it on the FSB and intelligence operatives. The result of this is that the state has expanded, uh, especially since 2012, and has become a great employer of the middle class. And uh, 40% of Russians now work for it, making them um, a key factor as a base for uh, Putin's support. Is that 40% of the Russian middle class or 40% of the population? 40% of the population. population. Okay, so managed democracy. Let's move on to the different different ways of thinking about Putin's authoritarianism here and critique them. So managed democracy is, as I mentioned in the beginning, a kind of hybrid political uh, structure in which there are, yes, certain democratic political processes, but within the political system, there is an exercise of authoritarian political functions as well. There are different kinds of managed democracies. There are different degrees within those different managed democracies to which elections are free and fair. According to many foreign observers, as I would, manage, you, I was, as I would imagine you know, Elections in Russia, and especially the 2012 elections, uh, were not free and fair. Um, Other aspects of Russia's managed democracy include authoritarian control of domestic, of democratic uh, processes, state control of TV channel one, V Canal in Russia would be the key example of this and other media, with some exceptions, Echo of Moscow, for example, which has an English uh, we- uh, website as well that your students could look at. Political violence, murder of journalists, one of the tra- most tragic among many tragic cases being the murder of Anna Polikovskaya in 2006, to shape the press, uh, to suppress the press and shape judicial outcomes. So. Is this a useful way of looking at the political system in Russia today? Yes, in the sense that it's usually a good idea to take historical actors at their own word. The former Kremlin political theorist, Lev Pavlovsky, uh, used this phrase himself to talk about managed democracy. Another strength is that it analyzes contemporary Russian politics in terms of categories of modern politics that have been applied to political systems all over the world, from Indonesia to the United States. So that's a uh, uh, advantage because Russia then becomes less other, less consummately evil and distinct from the rest of the world. But it's weak on how and why Russia became a managed democracy. Uh, there are kind of default Snap reasons that are given, such as escape from the chaos of the Yeltsin years, Russia's historical traditions of weak civil society and autocratic rule, inherently authoritarian Russian political culture, uh, whatever that is. History tends to get used very simplistically and reflexively. This is perhaps stretching it a bit, what I call the Matryoshka doll approach to Russian authoritarianism. So here is This came from actually a Japan political economist (laughs) clearing out his office. There's Yeltsin. You can buy dolls in which Putin are surrounding Yeltsin. Uh, Inside, of course, we have Khrushchev. Uh, uh, I think Brezhnev was supposed to be there, but I've (laughs) lost him over the years, and so forth and so on, going all the way back to Nicholas II, uh, the last uh, czar. Kleptocracy. As I mentioned at the outset, a political system controlled by political elites who have stolen public funds and public resources uh, to enrich themselves, uh, otherwise known as rule by thieves. It's also been applied to many political systems besides Russia, Mm -hmm. including the United States. You can look up yourself a blog run by The Washington Post, the coming Trump kleptocracy. Uh, And the methods of of kleptocrats in Russia and elsewhere are that political elites subvert the legal system, Mm. uh, fire judges they don't like or otherwise end investigations, amass control over banking and natural resources, and acquire extreme wealth in the process. Mm. There are certain strengths to this approach, in my view. It reminds us, because a lot of the explanation on how Russia became a kleptocracy focuses on Putin's time in St. Petersburg and even the personal connections he had from his Soviet days, even from his childhood. Reminds us that Russian politics is about more than Moscow. uh, And it reminds us how important it is in explaining how the Russian political system works to understand. First the KGB, and then the FSB's role in economic affairs. As reference to the KGB uh, suggests, this was a process that began before the Soviet Union ended. But some weaknesses. What about the motivations of of Putin's kleptocrats? Are they just interested in making money? Uh, Ideology of Russia as a great power, devotion to Russian culture, or sometimes one and sometimes the other, a simplistic assertion of identity often between intention and result, and quite focused on Putin and the ultra-elite. But in any political system, including, as we know from decades of painstaking research, the Stalinist political system, uh, political systems are always more than uh, the authoritarian leader or or dictator. So this approach doesn't give much attention to those around below the ultra-elite, and in my view, the historical context is too stunted and too restricted. So then we have my approach, which I'm working out. This is the subject of a book uh, in process, in which I approach contemporary Russian authoritarianism as a phase in a a revolutionary process that began in the late Soviet period and is still underway. The Soviet social revolution, as I call it, began not because of popular discontent from below in the 1980s, though that existed in the late Soviet period, rather. Like prior world revolutions, the Soviet social revolution began when political elites, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union under Mikhail Gorbachev, launched a process of reform that inadvertently resulted in the collapse of the system in state breakdown, in part because of conflict between political elites. Uh, One obvious example would be that between Gorbachev and Yeltsin. Reforms under Gorbachev, such as the creation of a limited of limited aspects of a market economy, the 1988 law on cooperatives or limited private em- enterprise, the introduction of electoral politics, 1989 elections to the Congress of People's Deputies, which included non-communists who were elected and multiple candidates, did not lead to the revitalization of the system which Gorbachev wanted, uh, but rather to Uh, the creation of alternative structures of authority and power and legitimacy that brought the system uh, down. So I can talk much more about this during uh, the limited question and answer period, but here we have a much broader uh, historical perspective that goes beyond assertions of timeless traditional aspects of Russian political culture, places the Soviet collapse and the rise of Putin in a global context of the transnational and multi-directional flow of ideas, people, and power. And historic, another strength is that historical analyses are useful. I think it's helpful to think of the model of the French Revolution here, but we risk shoehorning the present into the past. And in big explanatory models like this, there is challenging challenge of meshing history as chance and contingency with history as the unfolding of logical patterns. So teaching about the, the conclusion here is that Russian specialists have been much better about trying to, coming up with catchy models to define the political system in Russia, to capture the nature of Russia's authoritarianism, that in, in explaining exactly how and why this authoritarianism came to pass, in part because their approach, their use of history has been too simplistic, too constrained, too reflexive. Teaching about the late Soviet and post-Soviet period is, is challenging. It's very hard to get students to understand how slowly and back and forth things were changing in the late Soviet period. I use a lot of personal anecdotes, of which I'm lucky to have quite a few from my travels. I bring in material culture. This is the laptop I took to the Soviet Union in 1987. I was, I'm told, the second American ever to take a laptop to the Soviet Union. This is a Toshiba T-1000. I was offered by someone that I'm almost positive was a KGB agent in Leningrad 10,000 rubles for this. Uh, I was told by my graduate school colleague, Steven Kotkin, that this was more powerful, a more powerful computer than existed in many different uh, Soviet economic ministries. If you want to look at it. No, it's fine. I, you know, what I do with it is I say to students, you know, I tell them the stories I just told you and I said, you know, Soviets didn't know what this was. That People thought when I went into libraries this was a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. So to demonstrate technological underdevelopment. So material culture is good. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions about the arguments I gave you today, resources, whatever. Apologies for going over. Going down to a less I mean, sophisticated uh, idea or argument, just, what about just explaining what the Soviet Union was and what the significance of it and of what the Cold War was to students who are now, I mean, the students I was teaching this last year were born in 2001, 2002, so <laughs> <laughs> they <laughs> I mean, they had no lived, you know, yeah, it's, it's very, it's, I face the same challenge, because the students I teach are sometimes the same age as yours, sometimes a little older. They know a little bit about the, the Cold War through serious life, the Americans, uh, video, games. video games, yeah, which some of which have more pedagogical value than others. Yeah. Um, but I like to use first person accounts. Uh, you know, you can find some in my, my own book, *The Communist Experience uh, in the 20th Century*, which has a lot of first-person accounts with my commentary or other first-person accounts. Um, I like to use material culture. I probably don't do it enough. It's very, very hard for anyone who wasn't in the Soviet Union to understand what everyday life like, what life was like there, and the 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 difficulty of actually living in the Soviet Union, and yet paradoxically the attraction after the so- after the end of the Soviet Union of a welfare state in which the state provided so much, you know you could always count on bread in the stores, and fairly good tea, and after and you know up to a point until Gorbachev's anti-alcohol campaign and there had been one under Andropov, you know vodka and so forth, so. Uh, it's it's very, very hard. I'm happy to, you know, direct you to resources. In the video that you showed, um in his response, uh, the the, the girls seem to have a very affirming look on her face, as well as the everyone else in the background. I was wondering if you noticed that and if so can I you did explain notice that a little that. bit and uh, what the significance of his response is. Yeah, I noticed that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had heard about this. The school that he created for gifted children, and how proud he was that he came up with the name himself. I only actually found this video last night. I went through, I've been going through a number of different possibilities. And the reverence that she seems to be expressing mm-hmm. really, really um, made an impression on me. Uh, to, so how to explain it? That's really challenging. Um, the, of course, they're at a school that, and, and in, that has been provided by pretty much by Yeltsin himself, mm. himself, yeah. And they they're interacting with him. He's on a I don't know if you can see it. the The frame was a little small, but he's on a stage with it. So oh, one might so expect, good. you know, a, a girl of about I don't know, eleven or something like that. to to be awed just by being close to the president of the Russian Federation just like 11-year-old girls might be awed by being close to Donald Trump had he provided a school for the gifted gifted children. Um, But the larger point is that even though in general young people I'm thinking here of, you know, 18 to 35 or so, or 40, 45, tend to be those who are most dissatisfied with Putin. And at times, the backbone of uh, the opposition movement around Alexei Navalny, for example, there are always going to be exceptions. You can't, gener- generations are important as Tom Taylor said this morning in his presentation on Germany, but generations as a category don't explain everything. Um, so that's my off-the-cuff kind of remark, but it's a really stunning interaction. Um, yeah. Are you optimistic that, I take it from your remarks that you're optimistic that Russia will evolve them into a, a better situation politically economically. And as a quick companion to that, I'm interested in your assessment of the American press portraying Russia as the greatest enemy of the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great questions. Well, I tend to be an optimistic person, I mean, not 24-7. Um, and I, I would like to see Russia evolve into Uh, a democracy in which laws matter more than, as Boris Berezovsky, the oligarch who died under mysterious circumstances in London in 2013, put it, understandings. Um, I would like to see the wealth that Russia has uh, be much more evenly distributed throughout the population. Uh, the income levels in Russia are highly, as you probably know. Uh, there's tremendous inequality there. Um, I am, that said, and and in a way, you know, that seeing Russia, Russia's current phase of authoritarianism as part of a larger revolutionary process provides some basis for hope. Um, in that, you know, you know, after the French Revolution, there was a period of uh, restoration, reaction, and restoration. But eventually, you know, we have France as a as a fairly stable democracy, with some significant exceptions, such as the Vichy period. But I have no way of knowing um, what to expect. I don't like the way the simplistic ways in which. The American press mm. tends to demonize characterize the the Russian Federation um, usually the treatment of history is very simplistic or non-existent and you know, it's as though you know we, Russia only existed after 1991 and and again it tends to be ultra focused on Putin which to some extent my talk was today but I tried to use it as a way of getting using it to set up getting outside of Putin thinking much more broadly. So I, I'm all for greater dialogue and understanding between the Russian Federation and uh, the American government, <laughs> and also a much more com- complex treatment by the American press of all kinds of different dimensions of um, Russian politics, culture, economics, and society. There have been some really good articles lately in the New York Times. Yeah. There was one fairly recently about um, mm-hmm. Russia's emptying villages that included fantastic pictures. Mm-hmm. I can see that you get that. Mm-hmm. There was a great, uh, another great article on uh, the art scene, mm-hmm. including uh, a photographic phot- photographer who took pictures in Russia in 2008. So there's there are some exceptions, but in general, there you know the kind of Cold War wineries that. Existed with respect to the the American press and the Soviet Union, East versus West, you know, light versus darkness and so forth and so on have been resuscitated in in an unfortunate way. You know, that said, it's very important to understand the connections, and uh, I haven't alluded to it, but there are lots of connections between the Russian oligarch, it seems, and uh, certain figures in American politics. (laughs) Um, do you think it's it's relevant that in the long history of Russia, there have been many very strong leaders and it? Like, if, if you were looking at that also as a pattern in terms of the, the mm-hmm. long thread of history that Putin has also stepped into, because it does seem to be an aspect that goes all the way back to the Ivans. Right, right. It is an aspect of Russian history. Uh, and it's true that Russia has had very few extended periods of anything approaching democracy. But I, I like to fight push back with my students against the kind of, I, I, I'm going to use a phrase here, see if you think it's apt or not, the whack-a-mole kind of mm-hmm. approach to, to Russian history. You know, you just can't get rid of these these Authoritarian leaders. Every time you get you 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 knock one down, another one pops up. Uh, The question is historically how? What are the particular political, social, institutional contexts that have caused new phases of authoritarianism, semi-autocratic rule to resurface again? You can push back with students and say, well, look at England. England was a uh, you know was a country of, of, of monarchs. so was France. just because the, you know a country has a long tradition of uh, different authoritarian leaders I'll just use that as a shorthand doesn't mean authoritarianism is inevitable in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of teaching students to think about history and politics. If you will all join me in, in thinking um,